This message was recorded at the Billy Graham Training Center at The Cove in Asheville, North Carolina. Through the ministry of The Cove, we're training people in God's Word to win others to Christ. It's our goal to develop Christians who experience God through knowing Him better, knowing His Word, building godly relationships, and helping others know Him. We trust that this message will strengthen your walk with God and help you experience Him right where you are. I've got four or five questions, but there's only one that I know the answer to, so I'll, I'll answer that one. Um, you mentioned a section in your upcoming book titled, Who Does Jesus Think He Is? At what point in Jesus' life do you think he was aware of his identity? That's a great question. And it's a, I wanted to answer this question because my mentor, that was a question that he, he thought about a lot. Uh, at what point in his life do you think Jesus was aware of his identity? He mentions being about his father's business at age 12 in Luke. So obviously he, he realizes you know, he's in his father's house. Um, is there any biblical support for any earlier awareness? And no, there isn't. And that is the earliest one. But Dr. Lane used to think that he, as he read the scriptures, he saw things that he gradually realized that that was him. Um, of course, we don't know. I mean, maybe an angel, who knows how he, or maybe he always knew. I don't, I don't know. But uh, I think you're right that, that Luke 2 passage is the first time that he shows that he's, he's aware of who he is. And um, why were you looking for me everywhere? Didn't you know I'd be here? Where else am I going to be but my father's house? So, But the other questions, I'm sorry, they, they, they weren't life of Jesus questions, so... Uh, I, I couldn't engage with him, so sorry. Okay, we're in chapter 5. <clears throat> the healing at the pool. Um, Isaiah 35, 6 says that when the Messiah comes, the lame will leap like deer. The lame will leap like deer. And this is... Uh, Later on, we're going to see in, in, in Judaism, there were three or four, depending on who you read, specifically messianic miracles, miracles that only the Messiah could do. And this isn't necessarily one of them, but this is one of the big signs that, um, that, uh, that Jesus is, uh, is the Messiah. So um, I have to confess that I don't like this man. Uh, in this room, years ago, I referred to him as a jerk, and a, a lady was here who was very offended by that, that I would call somebody in the Bible a jerk, so I won't call him a jerk. Uh, I won't use the word jerk in reference to this person who I don't like, and I hope that by the end of this chapter, you won't like him as much as I don't like him, okay? I call him the man of excuses because every time he opens his sniveling little mouth, he's making an excuse, and it makes me, uh, it makes me mad. Of course, uh, you should one basic biblical interpretive principle, if there's somebody in the Bible that's doing something wrong, you're doing it in your own way wrong. You know, don't roll your eyes at the Pharisees because you're doing the same thing in, in some way, shape, or form, but... Uh, but I don't know why. This guy just gets under my skin. So <clears throat> let's look at it. Sometime later, there's a loose chronological connector. Sometimes John does that. Sometimes he'll say the next day or at this feast. 
But then sometimes it's just kind of vague. So sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast. He didn't tell us, doesn't tell us which feast it is. Um, for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, the house of Hesed. That's what that means. Uh, and I showed you a picture of the Bethesda pool. It's, it's very deep. I mean, very, very deep. It was part of the, the, the water system. Uh, and in the ancient world, there is an, um, an association with water and healing. In fact, after the Romans took over, I think I told you this, after the Romans took over Jerusalem and rebuilt it and renamed it, uh, a temple to the god Asclepius was built next to this pool, or maybe over this pool, and Asclepius is the god of healing. So there's this idea that water you know, has healing properties in the ancient world. So it's, covered, uh, it's uh, surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the lame, the blind, the paralyzed. Uh, one who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? And that sounds kind of harsh, but we're going to find out in a minute. It's the perfect question. I mean, are we all pointy-headed, pointy-headed fundamentalists? I believe Jesus is perfect. I think everything he said is perfect. I think when he didn't say something, it was the perfect time not to say something. I mean, I, I can go as far with the perfection of Jesus as you want to. I believe he's perfect. And even when he seems a little politically incorrect and harsh, it was the perfect time. Okay, Because what we're going to find out is this guy doesn't want to get well. His disease is his identity. Okay, So do you want to get well? Here comes the first excuse. Sir... The invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool. When the water is there, he's been there 38 years, and he couldn't get in front of the line. Uh, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So pretty flimsy excuse, right? Um, my note says, sometimes all that stands between us and Jesus is a flimsy excuse. Yeah. And so I think... His insight is, there's no point talking to this guy, right? So Jesus said to him, get up. Get up. Okay, we're going to find out. This guy doesn't even know who Jesus is. Now you will hear uh, teaching that Jesus could only heal people who had faith in him because he would say sometimes, your faith has made you well. Listen, Jesus doesn't even have to be there. Go home, your son's well. Go home, your servants heal. He doesn't have to be there to heal somebody. And there's no rules. I mean, there's, there's no rules that he has to submit to. So if, you're, if you've been an invalid 38 years and you don't know who this is, and Jesus says, get up, what do you do? You get the heck up, <laughs> right? That is his absolute authority. And, and again, that's a major theme that Christians don't talk about enough. Jesus' th- authority is absolute the absolute lordship of Jesus is, um, is so important. When, when, when he says Lord, it means Lord. Lord means Lord. Uh, absolute authority. And, and this is an expression of that. So he tells this little sniveling guy, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, picked up his mat and walked. That's Isaiah 35, 6. There it is. The lame will leap like deer. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. 
Whenever you read this, the day on which it took place was the Sabbath, you should hear. Because he's going to, with one exception, he does one healing on the Sabbath he doesn't get in trouble for. Otherwise, if he heals on the Sabbath, he gets in trouble. And it all has to do with the Pharisees and the oral law. That's the problem. Okay, so, so the day on which this took place was the Sabbath. So the Jews, the, the Jews in authority, said to the man who'd been healed, it's the Sabbath, the law, and when they say the law, they don't mean Torah, they mean oral law. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Uh, this comes right out of the Mishnah. Uh, the tractate is the Shabbat, Sabbath, uh, chapter 7, lines 2 through 29, that, um, that outline uh, 39 different classes of work. There's 39 different things that you can't do on the Sabbath. And uh, uh, carrying things is, is one of them. But the man replied, here's another excuse, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. Do you hear it? The tone? It's another excuse. Okay. Are you not liking him? Um, so they ask, uh, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was for Jesus has slipped away in the crowd. So a guy heals you after you've been lame for 38 years and you don't even find out what his name is. See the evidence piling up. Later, Jesus found him. What does that imply? He looked for him. Now, this is a fairly unmiraculous miracle. Um, I mean, Jesus says, get up. He gets up. No, no lightning bolts from the fingertips, no, no thunder, no, nothing like that, uh, which for the most part is how he does his miracles. But when these unmiraculous miracles happen, there's usually a miracle, what I call a miracle, miracle behind the miracle. And for me, the real miracle is that after this guy was healed, Jesus looked for him and found him. Why? Because Jesus is not satisfied with just healing his body. Jesus did not come to heal everybody he could heal. That's not why he came. He didn't come to give them bread. He came to give them himself, right? That's what he's come to do. So he wants, this guy didn't know who he is. He wants to introduce himself to this sniveling little excuse of a human being. Okay? This is not a guy you want on your team, but Jesus is reaching out to him. Does that make anybody else but me really glad? I have no business being on his team. What is wrong? I sometimes think, Jesus, what is wrong with you? I'm on your team. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay, so later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, and someone did write a question about this, see, you're well again, stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. And my note says he's appealing to him on his own level. I think, I don't know, maybe he's messing with him. I don't know. I can't answer that question. Um, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. I rest my case. So when he finally finds out who he is, he goes and he rats on him. So not the kind of uh, person you like. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leadership uh, persecuted him. And listen to how he gets, he gets kind of uh, in their face. 
I, I put circle around the work. Uh, Jesus says, knowing that he can't, he's not supposed to work on the Sabbath, Jesus says, my father is always at his work. To this very day, I too am working. It's a defiant statement. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Okay, he's breaking the law. He's breaking the oral law. Um, they tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal uh, with God. Jesus gave them this answer, amen, amen. So what does that mean? That means they're not going to understand what he says. Amen, amen. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. He's painting a picture of the Deuteronomy 18 prophet like unto Moses. I only do what I see the father do. I only say what I hear the father say, just like Moses did. Moses only said what God told him to say. And Jesus sees himself very much. I mean, if you ask Jesus, who do you think you are? He's the prophet like unto Moses from Deuteronomy 18. I will send another prophet and I will put like the words in his mouth and he'll only say what I tell him to say. Okay. Um, he, can only do, uh, he can only do what he sees his father doing. Notice how he points away from himself. Jesus constantly points away from himself. <coughs> You'll notice that um, when Jesus does a miracle, with one exception, no one ever praises him. They, they always praise God. Uh, the only exception is when he calms the storm on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples worship him in the boat. But otherwise, Jesus will do a miracle and people will praise God. And I cannot explain this other than there's something about his humility or his countenance or the fact that he's constantly saying things like this. I'm only saying what the Father gave me to say. I'm only doing what I see the Father doing. He is not drawing attention to himself. He's always pointing to the Father. Okay, And I think that's what this is about. Um, uh, he can only do what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son. Okay, sidebar. You, have you heard the endless sermons on phileo, agape, eros, right? The three Greek words for love, and agape is the highest form of love, and phileo is like brotherly love, filial love, and eros, is that's the bad kind of love, right? And you'll hear endless sermons about that, and there's the strict uh, lines that are drawn between those words. Well, what you need to know is the word that's used here is phileo. And that's always painted as kind of a secondary kind of love. Well, do you think that the love that the Father has for Jesus is a secondary kind of love? No, though, that is a very overpreached distinction that's made between the three different kinds of love. Language just doesn't work like that. So the, the words derive their meaning from the context. And the context here means phileo means the best kind of love you could possibly imagine, very deep, the love of God, okay? Um, the way words have meaning is a really interesting, interesting subject. So for the father loves the son, that's phileo. Um, the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater, greater things than these. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to who he is pleased to give it. It's interesting that the rabbis said uh, they taught that God 
continues to work on the Sabbath. Even God works on the Sabbath, the rabbi said. And they say he does two things. He continues to create life on the Sabbath, and he judges on the Sabbath. And Jesus is going to say right here that there are three functions that he does. He gives life, he brings judgment, and he receives glory. So I'm thinking there's some Jewish connection to, uh, uh, to what's being taught in, uh, in, in, in Jesus' world. <clears throat> so he gives life. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. And later on, Jesus will say he has the authority to judge, but he says, I don't judge anybody. I haven't come to judge people. I've come to save people. And so isn't that good news, that the one who, who is my judge is my Savior? The one who's been given the authority to judge me says, I, I guess what? I'm going to save you. And that's, that's good news. So he's given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. There's that little tag that he always puts. And here's, our, here's the plan of salvation. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, his favorite circumlocution for God, has eternal life and will not be condemned, but is crossed over from life to death. So there's the plan of salvation. Amen, amen. A time is coming and has now come. He's going to use that phrase a lot coming up here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life in himself. See this relationship between Son and Father, the, the, it's, it's so interesting. And, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming. When all who are in their graves, notice he didn't say, and has come. A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and will come out. Those who have done good will rise to life, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. Just I do not please myself, but him who sent me. That's, that's, that's God. So now Jesus goes into this discussion of testimonies about himself, and there, he'll give us four, and he'll, he'll make clear that they don't accept any of these uh, testimonies about himself. Let me just, let me just give them to you. <clears throat> the first one is self-testimony, the testimony about himself. And in Judaism, that's not allowed. Um, where's my quote? Um, the, the Mishnah says, none may be believed who testifies of himself. So self-testimony is not acceptable in Judaism anyway. Uh, secondly, John's testimony, John the Baptist's testimony, uh, Jesus will acknowledge that it's valuable, but it's insufficient because it's human. Third, God's work, the works that he's doing, uh, the lame man that he's just healed. But that doesn't work because they don't believe. And it requires faith to understand that God is doing these things through, through Jesus. So that doesn't work. And finally, the big one is Scripture testifies about who Jesus is. But his point is they've, they've just degraded the Scripture with their oral, oral law so that God's Word doesn't dwell in them anymore. So the four ways that might have testified to who Jesus is, I, they've you know, shut themselves off from those things. So listen, listen to Jesus <clears throat> say it. If I testify about myself, 
My testimony is not valid. See, that's a very Jewish thing to say. Uh, there's another who testifies in my favor. She's going to talk about John. And I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, and he's testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned. And by this thing, time, I think John is dead. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and for a time you chose to enjoy his light. I have testimony weighter than John, for the very work the Father has given me to finish, and which I am doing testifies that the Father sent me. And the Father who sent me, do you hear that? Sent me, sent me, sent me. The Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice nor seen his form. That's right out of Deuteronomy 4.12. Um, you heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. So, and he's not quoting it. He speaks in the Old Testament. He thinks in the Old Testament, I think. So, um, so um, yeah, you have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe in the one he sent. See how central that is to his identity? <clears throat> You diligently study the scriptures, and believe you me, these guys studied the Bible. They, they studied the Hebrew Bible. Later on in the rabbinic period, the, the studying Torah was, is, to this day is almost completely eclipsed by studying the oral law. I talked to a young Jewish, uh, Hasidic Jewish man in Jerusalem once, and we were talking about Jeremiah. And, uh, and he said, he goes, well, he goes, I can't really tell you what Jeremiah says, he says, I can, he was very proud, I can tell you what the Talmud says about Jeremiah, you know. So that's, that's kind of where Judaism now is now. Um, where I lost my place. Oh, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify to me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So they're cut off from every possible way that they might uh, see the test, accept the testimony uh, of Jesus, about Jesus. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have God's love in your hearts. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort effort to obtain the praise that comes from God. My note says, to unashamedly seek the praise of God and hear, well done. That's the kind of praise we should be seeking, praise from God. But do not think that I will accuse you, and that word for accuse is a very rare word. Um, it's not used but a, but a few times in the New Testament. It has to do with standing up in the assembly. You know the word agora? The, the, the marketplace, the assembly, where the assemblies took, the, the, the Greek word agora is in there. Um, uh, so it, it, the idea is accusing someone in front of a bunch of people. Um, do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses. Now you got to know, he, he should have just punched him in the nose. To say, you know, Moses is your accuser because Moses is their guy. We are the disciples of Moses. That's who they say, right? Uh, and occasionally Jesus will say, what did Moses say? Go look and read, read, find out what Moses said. 
And uh, so when, for him to say Moses is their accuser, oh my goodness, the sky was um, going to fall. In 928, by the way, is where they call themselves the disciples of Moses, if you want to write that down. Um, your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes are set. See, there it is. If you believe Moses, you'd believe me. Um, and that's also a, a, a phrase that comes from a Hebrew book called the Makilta. It says, if they believed Moses, how much more would they have believed God? But they didn't believe Moses. That's the Makilta, section 14, line 31. Um, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? So that whole great section was basically all the reasons why the Pharisees or the Jewish leadership are, are not going to be able to, to uh, receive and understand who Jesus is. Um, next comes a miracle that uh, it's the only miracle that occurs in all the Gospels. So it must be kind of important, don't you think? Maybe. So uh, let's look at the, the feeding of the 5,000. There's a wonderful echo of it in, in 2 Kings, uh, and we'll, uh, we'll refer to that later. Uh, but it's wonderful parallels between uh, 2 Kings 4, 42 and following and, and, uh, and John 6. Um, and chapter 6 in the Gospel of John really is a turning point. Things, uh, things really turn around in this chapter. Long chapter, chapter 6. Sometime after this, and someone much smarter than me did the calculations, and what they said was between uh, what happens in 4 and 5 and 6 is basically 6 months. I, I can't explain that, but it's in my notes, so it must be true. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw miraculous, the miraculous signs he performed on the sick. You don't see this as much in John. You see it a lot in Mark. Mark is very interested in the fact that Jesus is constantly crisscrossing the lake, the northern tip of the lake, to get away from the crowd. And that's apparently is what he's doing. Huge crowds of people. And uh, as I showed you on that picture, it never works. You can't get away. So he goes over to the other side of the lake, and this huge crowd follows him. Um, and John lets us know they're following him because they saw miraculous signs. They don't want to hear what he has to say necessarily. They want to see him do a miracle or feed them. Uh, then Jesus went up on the hillside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near him. What that means is that's the next to the last Passover. What that means is there's one more. He's, he's going to die in a year. That, that little marker means there's one more year to the final Passover. Okay? When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, why did he ask Philip? Because they're close to Bethsaida, and that's where Philip's from. Okay? So that makes sense. Um, let me do a little sidebar and quote, quote uh, William Lane. Uh, if you're going to write anything down, write this down. This is a good, great statement. Bill spoke in quotes. Bill said, you should always work at the level of your own inadequacy, because that's what we're about to see. Uh, Bill would say, don't do what you're good at. Anybody can do that. He said, you should always be right on the edge of your abilities. So if the Lord doesn't show up to help you, you will fail miserably. 
Isn't that a cool idea? You should always work at the level of your own inadequacy. Yeah, you should always work at the level of your own inadequacy. And that's what Jesus is doing with Philip. He's putting Philip in an impossible situation, right? There's, what, 5,000 men, so 15,000, 20,000 people, including women and children. And he's looked at this guy who he knows has nothing and says, I, we, we need to feed these people, okay? Um, he's, he's putting him at the level of his own inadequacy. Um, where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? Here's, he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. There's your little whispering John explaining his Jesus motivation. Philip answered, eight months' wages wouldn't buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Um, Andrew, uh, another, or another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Uh, he's also from Bethsaida, by the way. Here's a small boy with five, um, here's a boy with five small barley loaves. Barley is, uh, in the mission, is referred to as the food of beasts. Uh, Roman soldiers are given barley bread to eat when they were being punished. Okay, so it's crumb, the bread's crummy. Okay? Uh, five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will that go uh, among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place in spring, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. You miss it? The miracle happened. How'd he do it? He said the blessing. He blessed it. This is an unmiraculous miracle. I'm not saying it's not a great miracle, but he does it in a very unmiraculous way. It does not draw attention to himself. He just doesn't do that. Um, uh, he gave thanks, and he did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, and again, this is a very Jewish thing to say, gather the pieces that are left over and let nothing be wasted. In Judaism, this is called the pia, P-E-A-H, the leftovers. You know how your mom used to say, clean your plate because it's a sin to waste food? That's a very Jewish idea. Why is it a sin to waste food? Because God gives you food. Food's from God. And you're insulting him to waste it. Okay? So that's what he's basically saying. Pick up the leftovers. And the leftovers were given to the poor, or they were they're going to be given to the disciples, basically. So pick up the leftovers. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered, uh, so they gathered them and filled 12 baskets. Okay, this is this is going to change your life. We have two miraculous feedings, right? Five thousand to four thousand. This is the five thousand. The 5,000, when it's over, they pick up how many baskets? 12. The word for baskets is the key. And the, 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 the picking up of the leftover is the miracle behind the miracle, right? When I said there's an unmiraculous miracle, there's always a miracle behind the miracle, okay? And, and this will help you sort out the difference between the 4,000 and the 5,000, okay? So when the 5,000, when they pick up the pia, the leftover, there are 12 Kofinos, it's a different word for basket, 12 little lunch pail size baskets. It's a basket that you run a string through and you wear it over your shoulder. And it's like your lunch basket. Kofinos is the word, okay? Uh, 
So there are 15,000 people, and they pick up the leftovers, and there's, they can only find 12 little basketfuls. How many disciples are there? The, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is perfect provision. The disciples who are the servants are perfectly provided for with the leftovers. That's the miracle behind the miracle. I mean, feeding five, 10,000 people, that's not, shab- not too shabby. But the point is, uh, and, and then the feeding of the 4,000, they pick up seven spheroi. A spheroi is a man-sized, a rope basket. When Paul is led over the wall, it's in a spheros. It's a singular. It's a man-sized basket. So the miracle behind the feeding of the 4,000 is, is miraculous abundance. The miracle behind the 5,000 is perfect provision. And both of those are miracles. Let me give you my, my story. I'm in, uh, first time I ever went to Israel, we were making a video. And um, I'm at, in a real nice hotel. <laughs> I was doing our daily bread people and they put you in nice hotels. And uh, room service, you know, that whole thing. And my wife calls, and this was years ago, and we have two small babies at this point that are in diapers. And she calls me, and she says, the well's broken. We have well water. Okay, we live out in the country. She's got two kids in diapers and no water. Well, I'm at the Jerusalem Hilton waiting for my, you know, my uh, room service to come. So it's hard for me to enter into her situation, but, you know. So I said, uh, well, you know, call the well guy, Henry Well Company. She said, I did, and they say we probably need a new pump. It's $1,200, and uh, we don't have $1,200. So I said, well, you know, all we can do is pray. That's all we got, right? So on the phone, we prayed. And as I put the receiver down, there was a knock on the door, and it was the producer, uh, Fred Hollis, walks in and he says, you know, you're going to be here two weeks and we never, we never said, we never talked about paying you anything. It was a good deal for me because I got a free trip to Israel. So I was glad to be there. So we feel like we need to pay you something. So he hands me a check for $1,200. Now, if it had been $12 million, abundance, I wouldn't be here right now. I would be morbidly obese channel surfing in front of a big screen TV, right? But the miracle, the great miracle was perfect provision. And that, that, and you know, you, everyone has stories like that. You know, you hear those stories again and again where God miraculously gives you just exactly what you need. And I call her back and I say, get the, you know, you know, call Henry, have him come pull the pump and we'll get a new, get a new, get your water on. Um, that's the 12 baskets, perfect provision. And you've got to understand that that's just as much a miracle, and perhaps I think some, maybe even a greater miracle. The Lord of the universe knew that somewhere down in Franklin, Tennessee, the well had broken, and this one of his daughters needed $1,200. And so in Israel, he moved some guy's heart to write a check and give it to me. Now that's pretty... That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So I always think of that story when I think of the baskets. Uh, the perfect, uh, perfect provision we have to realize is, is as great a miracle as, as, uh, as abundance. As abundance. Okay. Um, okay, I lost. I don't even know where I am anymore. Um, okay. 
verse 14. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet, the prophet like Moses. What did Moses do in the wilderness? Manna. See what happened? He provides bread and they go, well, this, this has got to be the prophet because that's what Moses did. Another little quick sidebar. Uh, manna, you know about that word? It's one of my he- favorite Hebrew words, manna. Manna, uh, if you want to literally translate the word manna, mana, it's, an, it's a question mark and an exclamation point. That's a literal translation of the word manna. In Hebrew, the word ma is a question mark. My name is a question, Michael. The, the M in my name is a question mark. My name means, it's a question, who is like God? The answer, no one's like God. Now, before I learned that it was a question, I thought, how insightful of my parents to have named me that. You ever think that, Michael? How insightful of your parents. Who is like God? Of course. Then I found that it was a question. Okay, well, whatever. Okay, and na is an exclamation point, and you already know this, Hosanna. It's an exclamation point. Maranatha. So, mana, because they see it and they go, huh? What? What is this? There's no word for it. It's a question mark and an exclamation point. Okay. little trivia for you. Um, so, where did I get that? Where did that come from? Oh, yeah. Surely this is the prophet who's coming to the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him a king by force, a bread king, withdrew again into the hills by himself. So Jesus goes into hiding. And I didn't bring my list. I've got a list of all the times he hides. I'm sorry I didn't bring it because it's a really cool list. If I can remember it, I'll bring, I'll bring it later because I really want you to see how many times Jesus is making his, his uh, uh, presence a secret. So he hides. His response to the crowd wanting him to be a king is that he hides. Okay. <coughs> when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set across the lake for Capernaum. So they're going to go back to the other side, and he, but he doesn't go with them. Um, this is Psalm 107, 23, basically. There's a wonderful picture of um, the storm on the Sea of Galilee in Psalm 107. David must have seen it prophetically to write that psalm. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. Uh, When they drove three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. Um, There's another little, in Job 9, verses 8 through 11, there's this image of God passing by him, but he doesn't see them. So it's dark. And he almost goes without being noticed, but maybe it's a flash of lightning or something. Somehow they, in, in the midst of the darkness, they see that he's, he's walking on the water. Uh, they were terrified, because what walks on the water? Ghosts. Right, right. But he said to them, it is I, and NIV translates it, it is I, I would translate it I am, because I think it's a manifestation of divinity when he says it. But then he says, uh, and NIV translates it, don't be afraid. But uh, I think a closer to the original is simply no fear. When he's walking on the water, he basically says, I am. 
no fear. No fear. I look, that, that to me is, that gets to me. I am, no fear. Then they were willing to take him in the boat and immediately, Mark's favorite word, uthos, uh, the boat reached the shore uh, where they were heading. Um, and that's all John does with this story. Uh, the other, um, he just, he, he, look, he, he told that story in what, like five, five verses. The next day the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with the disciple but had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias, and the idea is they blown there from Tiberias, landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So, um, and this is the only place the city of, the only time the city of Tiberias is even mentioned. And it's a very important city, very big city. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. Remember, this whole thing happened in the first place when he was trying to get away from them. So he goes into hiding, and all this happens, and then they're still crisscrossing the lake looking for him. And uh, they get in the boats, and they go to Capernaum because they figure if we're, we're going to look for Jesus, we might as well start there because that's, that's his town. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And he doesn't answer them because he rarely ever does answer them. And he said, I tell you the truth. Amen, amen. You're looking for me not because you saw a miraculous sign, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You want a free meal. Do not work for food that spoils. And that's Isaiah 55 too. And once again, he's not quoting it. He thinks in Isaiah. He thinks in Exodus. Okay? Um, Isaiah 55, 2 is why do you, do you uh, spend silver on that which isn't food? Um, you don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God has placed his seal of approval. Now, we just heard that it's, it's a year to the next Passover. Seal of, seal of approval is a, a reference to the seal that's put on a sacrifice to show that it's acceptable to be sacrificed. That's an ominous thing for Jesus to say. Basically, Jesus is saying, God has sealed me to be sacrificed. I'm a fitting, I'm an acceptable sacrifice, the seal of approval. It's not like good housekeeping seal of approval. It's a, a seal that goes on to a, a sacrifice. Then they ask him, what must we do to do the work of God? He just told them, you, you're working for food. They want to do the work of God, which is the question basically the rich young ruler asks uh, in Luke 18. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe. And what's that? That's Genesis 15, 6. That's Abraham. You know, Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Um, the work of God is to believe in the one whom he has sent. That's, that's our work to do is belief. And God even empowers us to do that. So they ask him, and here's the motif of misunderstanding, what miraculous sign then will you do that we may see it and believe you? You see, they had no clue of what he just said. So basically give us a sign, prove it, and then we'll believe. Which is not, is it what he was talking about? Uh, what will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert, hint, hint, hint. 
As it was written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And that's not from the Bible. That's from a, a, an Aramaic document called a Targum, uh, a Targum on uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. So when they say, as it is written, that doesn't necessarily mean the Bible. Because if you try to find that in the Bible, you're not going to find it anywhere. It's not there. As it, uh, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, amen, amen. It's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. It's my Father who gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And now we're going to have a new theme. It's the ascending and descending motif. Jesus comes down from heaven and he goes back up to heaven. And that's going to be a new theme that we're going to hear over and over now again in John. The ascending and descending motif. And I think this is the first time that we, 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 hear, we hear it. Um, so they said, from now on, give us this bread. Again, Jesus didn't come to give them bread. He, gave, he came to give them himself. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread. And this is the first of seven I am sayings in John. I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Just like the water... The woman at the well, you drink this water, you'll never be thirsty again. You eat this bread, you'll never be hungry again. Okay. Um, but as I told you, you've seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And it's very important that he says that, because in a few minutes, he's going to drive a bunch of them away. <laughs> it's going to seem that he's driving a bunch of them away anyway. Uh, for I have come down from heaven. There it is again. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. There are these phrases that appear again and again and again, and, and I just circle them with a pencil in my Bible. You, they repeat and repeat and repeat. And coming down from heaven and God being the one who sent him are two phrases. In fact, I think he refers to God as the one who sent him. He calls him that more than he calls him God or the Father. I've got a list somewhere where I counted those. And once again, whenever he says, I'm the one who sent, he sent, that's Deuteronomy 18. That's the prophet like Moses. And this is the will of him who, him who sent me, that I uh, shall lose none of all that he has given me. Um, in 1028, he's going to say that no one can pluck us out of his hand. That I shall lose none of all that he's given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son, here's a little plan of salvation, and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. There's the promise. So are, are those not wonderful words to hear? Oh, my goodness. So what, how do the, the, the Jewish leaders respond? At this, the Jews began to murmur. And that word for murmur is the same word that describes the grumbling of the children of Israel in the Septuagint, in the Greek, the ancient Greek Old Testament, um, the Septuagint. At this, the Jews began to murmur against him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? He's not from heaven. He's from Nazareth, right? We know this guy. So they're grumbling. And then Jesus uses the same word. Stop murmuring amongst yourself. 
Um, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I love Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's quote, the call of God makes everything possible. The call of God makes everything possible. Um, and I will raise him up at the last day. And if you've been circling that, so that's the third time he said, I will raise him up at the last day. So that's on his mind. The prospect in Jesus' mind that he will raise us up on the last day is something that circles in his mind. I want to get into his head and understand what's important to him. And you can see that in his language, these phrases he repeats over and over again. It's written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. That's Isaiah. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. Remember, he's saying this to the Jews, Jewish leadership. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Amen, amen. He who believes has everlasting life. I'm the bread of life. Your forefathers ate manna and they died. So, but here is bread that comes down from heaven, there it is again, which a man may eat and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If a man eats this bread, he will live forever. And here it comes. It was not too bad until this point, but here's where it gets really bad. My bread is flesh. My flesh that I will give for the life of the world. Now, he's talking to people who don't even eat pork, right? And I, I'm serious. I'm not being, trying to be funny. I imagine that there were people that heard him say this who might have gotten physically sick, right? These are scandalous words. Now, we love these words because we know what they mean, but you've got to understand this drives some of his disciples away. Okay, so the, the bread that I, uh, the, the bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And he's going to just keep making it worse and worse. At this point, you think, you see Peter going, oh, please explain it. Please explain it. Please explain it. In a minute, he's going to say, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Okay. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat. Jesus said to them, Amen, Amen. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will, here it is, raise him up at the last day. That's like five times he said that. Here it is. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Um. Let me read my note. Jesus' bread is better than because it is living bread. The water is better because it's living water. His sacrifice is better because it's a living sacrifice. And we are called to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Whoever eats the flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live will live because of me. My note says, why do I feel so starved? Because I'm not consuming Jesus the way he offers himself to be consumed. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Our forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. Okay, he said this 
while he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. This is not synagogue talk. This is not the kind of thing you say to kosher Jews who are in the synagogue. And here it is. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard saying, who can accept it? Enough is enough. Aware of his, the disciples were grumbling. Now, the earlier the people were grumbling, it's the same word, murmuring. Now the disciples are murmuring. Remember I told you this chapter is a turning point in the Gospel of John. You see how things are turning? There have been huge crowds that he's got to run away from up to this point. And from this, I think there's going to be a, gr- a fairly gradual um, erosion of his popularity. Uh, one of the things I'm working on now in this new book is trying to kind of get an idea for the kind of graph, the movement in his popularity. We just assume he was popular and then all the way to the cross. But I think we're going to see in, in, in Matthew 17 when they come back to Capernaum, nobody's there waiting for him. They're, it's just Jesus and Peter, just the two of them. There's no big crowd. I think what happens, and it, it turns here, he starts saying things. That, the pe- that drive people away. And he gradually, his popularity gradually erodes. That's my intuition. I can't prove it yet, but uh, maybe, maybe if I can put my thinking hat on, I can see if that's true or not. Where the disciples were grumbling uh, about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? And that word for offend, I wrote a whole album on, is scandalizo. Uh, scandalon is a noun. It's a stumbling stone. It's, we get our word stumble, uh, uh, scandal from it. Jesus is, uh, according to uh, 1 Peter 2 and Romans 9.32, he is a stone that makes men stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And, and here he is being himself doing that. Um, some more references. Matthew 11.6. John 16, 1. Isaiah 8, 14 says that he will be a rock of offense. Okay? And uh, he is is being himself here. If he were wanting to drum up, simply drum up followers, he wouldn't talk like this. And he's kind of ruining it. He had a good thing going. (laughs) And he's ruining it, ruining it by being who he is. Um, Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend? Here's this ascending, descending motif. What if you see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? They're going to see that. The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. And that is as close to an explanation as you're going to get from him. Okay? Let's look at it again. The words I've spoken to you are spirit. And they are life. So all this eat my flesh and drink my blood business, this is as close as he's going to get to explaining. Um, uh, The words I've spoken to you are spirit. The flesh counts for nothing. Um, The words I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. And here's a little whispering. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. And what must have that been like? Because I've got to believe that when the, when the 12 come back the first time, the first mission they're sent on, and the, the gospel say they come back rejoicing, even the demons submit to us. Judas must have been one of those people. And Jesus knows all along what's, what's going uh, to take place because John tells us he did. He knew from the very beginning. 
He'd known from the very beginning which of them uh, did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. And after this last scene, you know, the question isn't, boy, they're really, they're really crazy not to follow Jesus. The question is, how, how was anybody able to stick with him? Right? And the answer is, because the Father enables them. Right? That's why I told you no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. And here's the big, 66 is the big turning point. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Okay? I've hung on as long as I can. I can't take any more of this. I'm going home. It's a big moment. Um, Verse uh, 76. Let me explain. In Greek... Greek has an ability that we don't have in English. In, with a, uh, in, in Greek, I can ask a question that expects a yes answer or a no answer by the use of a part of particle. May, uh, the may particle expects a no answer. We do it with inflection. Uh, de, D-E, expects a yes answer. This is a may question. So this expects the answer no. And so I, tra- I would translate it this way. Uh, you don't want to leave too, do you? Something like that. He's expecting them to say no. Do you want to leave too? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom should we go? Now I call this loyal despair. Right? It's not, oh Lord, where else shall we go? Peter's saying, I got no place else to go. I've left everything to follow you. I got no place else to go. You have the words of eternal life. I'm not leaving. Although he's looking at the other guys walking away and saying, maybe that's not such a bad idea. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And that is the second confession of Peter. Peter confesses Jesus twice. One at Caesarea Philippi and kind of a mountaintop experience. But God bless him. He confesses who Jesus is in the face of the scandal. The, the stumbling of the other disciples. So, God bless Peter. Lord, to whom shall we go? Uh, my note says the dilemma is that there is no place else to go. Then Jesus replied, and you would think Jesus would go, "Way to go, Peter! Thanks, thanks for hanging in there." But that's not what he says. Then Jesus replied, "Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil." And then John explains he meant Judas. The son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve was later to betray him. Isn't it interesting? Are you see how consistent this whispering business is? You, after you after you read John this way, I said you'll you'll hear a verse and you go, well, that sounds like John. He's explaining something. 